This episode has been mixed and edited by the team at Next Day Podcast. For professional podcast editing services with 24-hour turnarounds, visit nextdaypodcast.com. And if you're new to podcasting, check out our amazing podcast launch packages. nextdaypodcast.com. Record, upload, relax. Welcome to Destination Change, a podcast where we talk recovery, treatment, and more. I'm your host, Angie Fiedler-Sutton, with the National Behavioral Health Association Providers. Our guest today is Christina Padilla. Christina is the Vice President of Education and Strategic Development for the California Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals, otherwise known as CCAP, Chief Academic Officer for CCAP Education Institute, and Chief Academic Officer for the CCAP Academy. Christina is an Addiction Technology Transfer Center trainer. She serves on several boards and committees, including the National Association of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Addiction Professionals, and their allies, otherwise known as NALGAP, and past advisory board member for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, Sacramento Board. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Angie. Now, the whole point of the Destination Podcast is to talk about the recovery space. So I want to kind of get a little bit of background in terms of how you got into the recovery space in terms of, you know, what drew you to it? Well, there's so many different reasons of why I do what I do and the passion that I have and uh, why I'm at today and, you know, the success that, you know, the creators brought me and, you know, the hard work that I've done. But, you know, in the very beginning of like where I wanted to go, with my career, where I wanted to go with my life. You know, I found myself working in a couple different institutions and prisons in the very beginning and then realizing, you know, hey, you know what would be really interesting would be actually to do something to do in psychology. I've always been fascinated with the part of human behavior. But even before that, we'll go back X amount of years. I'm 44 years old, so I'm dating myself, not technically dating myself, but you know, I'm a little bit, well, I'm 44. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And one of the things is, is being in recovery and having a drug of choice that I no longer use and choose not to use. So my passion at a young age of freeing my body, mind, and soul as this disease is, is, can cripple a lot of people is that not putting any kind of substance in my body, you know, that'll alter my thought process. And when I was younger and under the age of 20, at a very young age, you know, my drug of choice was meth. And, you know, I was in the gang life and doing a lot of great stuff, but on the wrong side of the road, meaning that, you know, I had been on probation. I went to juvenile hall. I was running around. And one of the things, Angie, I didn't even have a bad upbringing in regards to like my family. My family, I mean, they were busy. I was born into gangs or I was born into drugs and I was born into alcohol. I mean, my dad was an alcoholic, but at the same time, for me, you know, as far as my destiny of where I'm at today, of how I got into this is that I just wanted to help other people. I know I struggled. I know I was bored. I got into gangs. I got into violence. I got into drugs. But I just knew at some point that I I had a life calling of something else, you know, and I and I knew for a fact that if I could get into the right spot and go through, you know, not only just a treatment program, but also work my own steps, work my freestyle recovery, whether it had to deal with behavior modification, behavior, overall arching of, you know, any kind of cravings, any kind of addiction, also mental health and staying substance free, 
you know, it was very important to me. So how I got into this space is not only just through my own addiction, but also wanted me to help other people as well too. And, and even when I was in my addiction, Angie, I mean, I was still helping people, you know, and also when I was in my gangs, I still help people. I'd still do, you know, presentations and different stuff and how people can get out of gangs or actually not even just get out. It was more of the understanding of the education of what, what happened inside of a, why we join gangs. And it's really the hierarchy of needs of us needing different stuff, whether it's attention, whether it's a family, it's all of the above. So when I go back to the question that you asked me, like, how did I get into all this? My whole life set me up for what I'm doing today. I wouldn't take anything back, but that the fact that I hurt my family dearly and uh, I'd walk into the house and they'd have ice packs for me because if I hadn't been beat up through a domestic violence relationship with my first girlfriend, it was more to the fact of I was coming in, whether it was gang fights or alcohol or drugs or any of that stuff. And my family had to endure and see that me basically waste my life away. So in doing that, you know, I knew my, my mom, thank goodness, it was the person that was like, hey, you have a better calling than this. And then there was also a police officer when I was young that was like, you got a better calling for this. Uh, don't you got a boyfriend? I was like a boyfriend, more like a girlfriend. Okay. Because I am part of the LGBT identified as a gender fluid person and same gender loving and pansexual person. So for me, I know that was a huge, you know, breakdown of why I do, of how I got into it. It's not why I do what I do, but how I got into it. You know, I was introduced and wanted to work in the prisons. I wanted to work with people that were justice involved or locked up behind bars. I also wanted to work with those that were addicted to substances or just had hard times. You know, I think it was important for me to be a role model and also for the LGBT community, for all of our people that are suffering in silence. You know, I don't want them to do that anymore, especially our trans community, our gender fluid community. So I do that, you know what I mean? And that's how I got involved in what I do. Great. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Now, the point of the Destination Change podcast is that change and recovery is a process. It's a journey. It's not something that you can just do and get over with. There are barriers, there are, you know, issues. So for you, since you are someone in recovery yourself, how do you define what it means to go through treatment or recovery? Well, I think there's multiple pathways through recovery. There's your traditional where some people don't go to treatment, right? So they'll do 12 steps, you know, AANA, or there's freestyle recovery that one might be a modality of different stuff in regards to like therapy and 12 step different stuff. And then there's just treatment, which will also be mental health and, uh, you know, going in, you know, detoxing a nurse, the whole situation, and then treatment plans and stuff. And so for me, you know, as far as you asking the question, like, Angie, really quick, you said, how do I get into it? How did I get into it? What does it mean to go through treatment or recovery for you? I mean, what does... So what it means to go through treatment and recovery, you know, it's a port of entry. You know, there's a lot of thoughts, emotions, a process that feels broken, you know, in the very beginning of it all. There's different, like I said, modalities. There's fear of abandonment of what's going to happen. You know, some programs do blackout programs, So there's a fear first going in and losing everything. But if we all look at it together, whether we lost everything or we were going to feel like we hit rock bottom, we don't always need to hit rock bottom. Sometimes our relapse, our addiction has caused us so much pain. And one of the things too, and especially I think it's in the AA big book, was talking about suffering, unmanageable suffering, some type of suffering that's something that we don't want to go through. So I think we also, getting into treatment is giving up 
And, and when I mean giving up, giving up of surrendering to either a higher power or creator or to yourself or to your family that you want to get well. You're tired of living this disastrous life that has been a slave to you. You know what I mean? That you've been chasing the bag, chasing the sag, trying to get domestic violence relationships. You might be even in like some type of sex trade where, you know, you can't, you know, fend for yourself that, you know, maybe you're on hormones, a mixture of different things that people are supplying for you. But to get into treatment is really finally saying, hey, and treatment might look like different stuff because recovery is different than treatment. When we're looking at treatment is when we're in the midst of it all. You know, recovery is the after, aftermath of the process. So looking at the treatment aspect is like, wow, I'm going to have to do some work. I can't hide behind this masquerade anymore. And I hope these people see my, my stuff. And what if I'm so good of a manipulator that I can see through it? The game's on if I wasn't all the way ready. And, and being ready, it could feel like you weren't ready. But it's just kind of reminds me, Angie, like when we talk about people that are getting pregnant, right? Some people get pregnant because of the fact that it just happened. Like for me, I ended up putting into process of saying, hey, I'm going to have this kid, my kid, my child that's six years old right now, Charisma, I planned it out. Some people don't plan out that they want to go into treatment. Other people do. The whole industry in regards to waiting for treatment I mean, it's ridiculous right now. As we talk about in the emergency room, if you break your leg, you can go into treatment and get treatment right off the top. But if you need to go into treatment for drugs and alcohol or any kind of other stuff, there's a process or you might be waiting. You know, that could somebody could die before then. But when we're looking at treatment and the port of entry, there's so many different ways. There's RCOs, there's recovery treatment, there's different modalities of ways of therapeutic interventions that people do. And I think if we look at the stages of change of where somebody is in the pre-contemplation, preparation, action and maintenance phase, I think a lot of people are in the pre-contemplation when they're thinking about treatment and what that looks like. There's a lot of different stuff, you know, harm reduction. There's a lot of stigma around it and the intervention process that goes into that piece. And then when we get into the contemplation, the other part is like meeting new people, you know what I mean, of recovery and getting that treatment aspect is how important that piece is. And the other part is, too, is, you know, when you get in that action stage of the other piece of it is establishing recovery capital and where you're at. But there's a lot of different treatment methods that people go through. There's a lot of different stuff that we put out there in the industry. But it's really like, where are you at with it? Because everybody that walks through those doors to get treatment is going to need different things. And what I mean by that is meeting their client where they're at, not meeting the therapist or the licensed advanced drug abuse counselor or certified counselor where they're at. So maybe they only have training on X amount, motivational interviewing. Well, that professional needs to go get more continuing education and continue to further their credential so they can have a modality to meet the client where they're at. Maybe this person is an LGBT person. Maybe this person has an eating addiction and needs a referral out to, you know, that piece. So that's important for a person to take into perspective when they're going into treatment, like, oh my goodness, what if they don't know about this? Like I haven't came out yet, or I have an eating disorder. They're going to find me out. This is treatment is when the masquerade and the party stops, but at the the healing starts to, to kick in and the detox starts to happen from our mental, our physical and spiritual world. Great. Well, you talk about how everybody's a little bit different, obviously, uh, because people are different. Surprise, surprise. Obviously, treatment is a difficult process. So what are some of the more common barriers you've seen either you yourself have gone through or that you've seen that have had people not be able to move forward on the treatment plan or 
Sure. So there's a couple of things. I'll start with personal, right? So I went through a treatment facility when I was 20 years old, right? So now if I knew what I know now being 44, that was 24 years ago, woo, that treatment facility needed a facelift, okay? And it was a residential facility. And so I would say as far as the process to get somebody a bed and to get somebody help, I did mention the fact of the emergency room. If we break our leg or break our finger, we're able to get treatment right away. But what about for our mind? And what about for the substance use disorder that is basically killing us every single day by us going out there and using, you know, and not that we want to die, but there's accidental overdoses as well, too. And if we do not, one of the barriers is if we do not get these people, these mothers and fathers and non-binary people and kids and non-conforming kids and just all of them, the treatment that they need to, they're going to die. And society has lacked the part of let's help everybody. Let's talk about inclusivity. Let's bring everybody together. We want to try to save the world, right? There's so much happening that they focused on on COVID-19. What about the epidemic? COVID-19 was very serious, you know, and well, so was the drugs as well, too. And a lot of limelight got put on like opioids, right? But really, there's meth. There's a lot of cartels. There's a lot of places from China that are making. And when I say cartels, I mean like a lot of different places. And what? let me clarify that real quick. For like in Mexico or Colombia or different places that are having offshore stuff brought in here that has fentanyl, you know, so there's that part, too. So the barrier is also, you know, how can we reshift all, you know, that's the police department and FBI of all this stuff that's coming into the United States or that's already here under tunnels or, you know, over overseas. You know, there's a lot of different reasons, uh, barriers where our kids, how can we actually do the flip side of put a barrier so our kids aren't overdosing on this, you know, in the schools, how can they monitor that? So when we're looking at barriers to get this, there's a lot of stuff. There's also people don't have the right funding. And what I mean by that is that if you don't have money and you go through a county program, there's that piece, but then there's also private pay where people are paying $30,000 to $45,000 a month for, you know, a chef or whatever, for more of the finer things. And then also there's the county part too, to see if they qualify. In my lifetime, I look at it just like an emergency room. Everybody should be able to qualify, period. You know, so the barriers to that healthcare, you know, when we talk about disparities, it's real. Anybody should be able to walk through the doors and get a bed that seeks help or not wants to seek, that doesn't want to seek help, that's going through detox and then still thinking about whether they're in their pre-contemplation stage, like I talk about the stages of change, you know what I mean, of going to a program, not going to a program or going to a sober living recovery residence house as well too. So, and that's another thing, is there a bed available? So there's also money that's involved. You know, I think there should be more grants out there given for scholarships to these programs for people that need them. There are people that are dying out there just because they can't get a bed. I think there needs to be more of a workforce and more people hired, more push for better care in our space as well too, where our counselors are not getting burnt out so they can, you know, really give that care out. So that's another barrier overworked professionals. Like we want to make sure we're paying them correctly too in their pay so they can be happy. Therefore, their mental health is good. Therefore, they're giving our clients really good services. Great. You had mentioned earlier the uh, idea of recovery capital. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Kind of for those who may not be familiar with the term, kind of explain what you mean by that. Well, recovery capital is where you measure your own. It's an assessment where it talks about where you're at in your recovery. 
A lot of times we sit and we have an assessment process or an intake process that when we first come into a treatment facility and they sit down and they give us a whole bunch of questions and all this stuff. Well, recovery capital, basically building out your where you're at in your own recovery and giving you the assessment and the tools of saying, this is where I am. You know, I'm identifying myself as an LGBT person. You know, is it talking about I'm using or not? Where is my happiness, you know, with my family, my friends, you know, when I'm doing that assessment, that part that's so important when we talk about recovery capital is building our own capital. A lot of times we don't get a chance to, and once we get the assessment, we can take that anywhere. What if we do need more treatment or we do need something else for the most part? That part right there is something that we have, you know, and when we look at what we have, our physical, emotionally, that support our recovery, what else do I need to continue my recovery? When we're looking at the emotional part of recovery capital, you know, I want to be happy. I want to build a really good community, a network. I don't want to use anymore. I want to be, I want to ask for help when I need it. So having all those specific things is so important because there's so much stigma that's out there, you know, and there's so many multiple awarenesses for practicing recovery. There's SMART, there's NA, there's a mix of different modalities of individuals that do self-help or harm reduction. So this part right there, you get to build out your own recovery. You know, maybe it's also with therapy, you know, a referral to therapy that you're still doing. And like I had mentioned before about freestyle recovery is not only it's different than uh, recovery capital, it's not an assessment. It's just what you're utilizing for your recovery. But the part of the recovery capital piece, I mean, it really shows you where you're at right now. And sometimes people do it a month, every three months, you know, but it's kind of like, when people do a treatment plan and they change it, well, this is your treatment plan, but more in the part of where am I at today in my own recovery? And I get to be the driver of it. I don't have to go to a treatment facility and have it done. There are places that have recovery capital assessments. You know, I know David Best has an assessment and also David, I'm trying to think of his last name, uh, has one too here in uh, California, actually in the United States that are out there for the most part, but I'm imagining there'll probably be more tools as we go uh, because it's more on a personal level and you can do it on the computer and you do it at your leisure. Great. Well, that kind of segues into my next question, which, you know, what resources do you use on a regular basis in both as someone going through treatment yourself, as well as someone who is treating people? So what has worked for me is not only just to work in a place, because I work for an organization that we're here in the addiction space. So, I mean, could you imagine coming to work loaded or busted and broke and be still fighting with gangs and coming in with black eyes? You know, that I have to have myself be accountable. Plus, I'm older now, right? So that was an awesome part. And for also to be a leader in the industry, because there's a lot of people that are like, hey, I want to be where you're at. And I'm like, okay, well, this is how you can get there. I practice, you know, my own 12, you know, 12 step instead of calling this person a sponsor, I call them my navigator (laughs) and, you know, I have my navigator. And then I also seek therapy once a month. I also make sure that me and my little girl connect. I travel all over the nation and that really helps me to give out messages of hope. And, you know, those that are working with LGBT specific clients, I do clinical best practices for working with LGBT specific clients population. So that 
keeps me well. I mean, sometimes we're gone a lot of times, but I know I'm helping and it feels good to feel not just needed, but also putting the message out there, even if it's not warranted by other states, you know, with all the anti-legislation, you know, it's nothing like getting on a stage and I'm telling you, hey, we got security at both doors just in case there's anything that happens. This is when I went out to Florida. And then also on the side of the stage is for you. And you're like, wait, what? The message is so important that we get out there. So knowing that I changed perceived perspective and, and plant seeds about not only just the LGBT individuals, but also in the addiction space of grief and loss, you know, ethics, you know, our ethics of how we hold each other accountable and also, you know, making sure people are doing the best practices. And also my indigenous side, really speaking and living my truth of as an indigenous person, you know, Apache and Cherokee and staying spiritual, you know, saging every other day and, you know, really keeping in contact and talking to my ancestors and really being a very spiritual person because I am very liberal and very spiritual and uh, working my program. You know, I think when we talk about recovery, there's so much to say because everybody works their recovery different. Of course, we have structure, but at the end of the day, when you're left alone, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? What are you picking up? I love affirmations. On my phone, I've got this uh, this app that shoots me really positive quotes, which is awesome. So that helps me out. I've got it shot to me like every four, well, four different quotes throughout the day. So when I'm feeling down or I'm feeling some type of way, I always know that my phone is going to shoot me a, a text, shall I say, with something very positive. That's one of the things on my hard days, you know, uh, I reach out before I wouldn't, you know, I might text somebody and be like, oh, you need to talk me off, off a pole <laughs> or off a bridge, but not in that way, specifically off a bridge. But one of the things is, is being able to know who your go-to is to call. Who can you call? And if that person's not available, who else will you call? You know, having your own safety net, your own plan. I have that. That's not to say that I don't have bad days and sometimes I don't feel like reaching out. So maybe I might get on the internet and maybe I might make a TikTok. I love TikToks and Instagrams and stuff like that. But I mean, I keep myself busy. I dive into work. If I'm going through a lot of stress, I do my best work when I'm stressed. It's terrible. It's like, oh my goodness. When I'm super stressed out, like I, I mean, I'm become a workaholic. So just being aware of that is very important. On the flip side, how other people do it is different, different things. Some people exercise. Some people go take long walks at the beaches. If you have a beach next to you, some people read. I read too. Some people watch inspirations. They listen to podcasts like you're hearing my voice right here with Angie today to see how they can better themselves. And, you know, for 2023, whatever our New Year's resolutions have been should continue to be all our year and then some too carried out to the next year. You know, so there's a mix of all different things. Now, you've talked already a little bit about the uh, LGBTQ community and some of the issues that they have. But could, let's go a little bit more into detail at that, since that's kind of one of your key <laughs> personality traits. Tell me a little bit more about, like, what are some of the more specific issues that may be impacting that community? So more of the concern that's impacting the community. Well, first, I probably should have said in the beginning how I identify and also my pronouns, because that's always very affirming. Instead of saying friendly, a lot of times when people say, yeah, we're LGBT friendly, I'm like, well, does that mean that you weren't friendly before? So I kind of tell treatment facilities, just don't put that in their literature, just to put informed and make sure that you're informed before you do it. So when we're looking at the LGBT community 
and some of the concerns that are out there, the coming out process has always been a process. You know, a lot of people call it phases, but really it's stages, you know, so for somebody to live out loud and be their authentic self is so very much important. I think that part right there is something that a lot of people struggle with because it hasn't been uh, familiarized. And I don't like the word normalized because what is normal? Because what is the opposite of normal is unnormal. We're not unnormal people. We're just, it hasn't been familiar in our decade or our time as it was before. Fine. Like I said, I'm Native American. So even before, you know, colonization came, nobody cared about you know, if you were a two-spirited person and walking and different tribes call LGBT people different things. The more colonized way would be LGBT, saying LGBT, which is fine because I identify as a gender fluid, trans, two-spirit, non-binary person and my sexual orientation, which is really nobody's business, but I tell it out there so other people can say, hey, I can identify with them. I can identify with her. I can identify with that part. But it's same, I think I said that already, same gender loving slash pansexual, which I can explain later. But a lot of the concerns that have happened is there's a lot of anti-legislation that's out there throughout the states. In California, we're more of a liberal state as we look into Florida, we look into Texas, Oklahoma. There's a lot of different states I'm calling out because, you know, they're banding and making like hormone treatment they're making it illegal when people need it, you know, or we need to medically transition or we need top surgery or bottom surgery if an individual needs to transition. Also, the equality. We talk about equity, but equality as people, same sex marriage couples can get married. Well, what about the trans folks? You know, we left out the T a little bit when we talked about, you know, that's great. You know, individuals can get married, but also for trans women, trans men non-binary folks to get married as well, too, and be able to say, hey, we're, you know, they don't identify as wife or husband, you know, they identify as a partner, you know, and different terminology, you know, and, you know, I'd say also they struggle with getting there. A lot of concerns, too, is struggling with social security numbers, you know, getting their right name stuck on the birth certificates and stuff like that. Also, uh, a lot of in clinical realms, a lot of therapists and uh, substance abuse counselors and doctors and lawyers and HR and admission staff, we want to respect those individuals. They're getting mispronounced. You know, they're getting misgendered, you know. Uh, so we really want to be careful. And what we do for one, we want to do for all. So not just because somebody appears the stereotype of an LGBT two-spirited person, but the fact that we're doing this for anybody that walks through. So I think the first part even in treatment is making sure that we have informed LGBT that they're informed. <laughs> I think that part is important. That part, I cannot tell you enough to make sure that you and your staff from two to three doing trainings two to three or four times out of, out of the year is important. If we didn't have to do this all the time, it would have been already familiarized, but people are not familiar. you know. And I think that part, we're missing the bar on that to, for, for training. That is great to hear. In terms of the people who are the counselors who are listening and the people who are treating others that are going through recovery, what kind of uh, or what are your go-to resources that you use on a regular basis that you would recommend? So the suicide hotline is something important, I think, for clinicians and counselors to really utilize that because when we get off from eight to five, you know, there are people that go down the rabbit hole, so to speak. You know, ethically, we're off. So we got to give them resources and, you know, different things to do. There's also the Trevor 
hotline as well, too, for the LGBT community and anybody identifying in that community or feels comfortable identified and calls that particular number too. Uh, they have a lot of good resources on there. There's also Nail Gap. There also will be in BHAP with a lot of information in regards to LGBT stuff. That's actually being built out this year. So excited about that, that there'll be you know, a little committee, a little team and stuff to for that piece that you'll be able to get some resources on the NBHAP website along with, you know, there'll be a, a little team as well too. But the go-to is also having gender-specific therapists, people working with, you know, as far as gender, also LGBT out people that are, you know, out there as well too, that we're making resources available. Also, I'd reach out to your LGBT community center in your state or your city and get familiar with them. Also go to prides, you know, and put your booth up there and get more familiar with the LGBT community and helping that community in regards to supporting them. And you'll learn a lot, you know, you'll meet a lot of people. And then also the resources to to put out there is, is so important. Also, if they usually sometimes also not only do they have an LGBT community, but they also have a trans or gender spectrum or something that's specific to like non-binary and trans individuals like for hormones and different stuff in different states. So I would research that as well too. And then as far as counseling, I would also, there's psychology today that you you could get recommended on in different places. That's just to name a few uh, for people that work with LGBT specific people that have more of a experience, you know, that worked with couples or same sex or non-binary individuals or trans or poly relationships, you know, with multiple partners, you know, so that part's important as well, too. Want to talk a little bit more about like some of the CCAP resources that are available to counselors? Yeah. So some of the CCAP resources is that we have a certificate and also it's two to three days. It's probably about three days that you can get. We hold it twice a year and you can find that on our website and we can plug that too. It's usually, I believe, I think it's www.ccapconferences.com. It has a lot of our stuff. And if it's not there, we'll make sure to put a link on that piece. But a lot of our conferences and our trainings are on that specific site. Uh, But we also have a DIE endorsement because the other one's a certificate that everybody can have. But we also have an endorsement, not only when we're talking about inclusion for LGBT, but also for diversity, inclusion, and equity. When we talk about a diverse area of people and also inclusive uh, to not only people that with disabilities, elders, women, LGBT, all of that, you know, justice involved individuals. And then as a professional, that's important. And then equity. So that's some of the services. Uh, We also do trainings as well, too. So there's that piece. And we're very LGBT informed as well, too. Was there anything that you wanted to discuss that we haven't or that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Not that I know of. I think I just, as an out LGBT person, you know, I think the impact is so important from hearing from other people's and their stories. You know, it is so important to know that you're not alone. You know, these are my kind of closing thoughts of what we can do, where we can go. And like when we talk about destination change and a journey of recovery, that's to everybody. We are all sometimes endure suffering for reasons we can't even comprehend. There could be somebody that was in the hospital. Like my friend is in the hospital right now. She didn't realize, you know, over some dog bites, like she didn't know that that was going to happen, you know, but she's going through a different recovery. There's somebody else that might be suffering from, you know, cancer. There could be somebody suffering for getting beat up or domestic violence. Like there's a lot happening out there. So being kind to each other, I can't even tell you, we never know what everybody else is going through. 
We could have somebody that's going through a divorce or hardship of relationship because that, that hits home. Make sure you take care of yourself on those relationships out there. But in all actuality, you know, uh, this world needs to, as we can make it a better place together by healing ourselves to be better for our families, being better for our partners, being better for our parents, you know, whatever happened to us, you know, doing the best that we could for our families and our parents. Sometimes we have gotten lost in the shuffle, you know, and through our own addiction or through others' addictions, maybe we have lost that piece. But also the connection that we need to have with our partners, our family members, what are we doing for our kids? You know, are we making that connection with them so they are not joining gangs, that they're not feeling like they're left out, that we're overworking, that they think that they have to go snort lines in and put poison into their veins. You know, we're losing kids left and right to not only just fentanyl, but crank and meth and all kind of stuff that's out there. We have to take action in some capacity to change what's going on. And it's not just going to change by laws. It's got to change by actions of people. Connections are so important without connections is deconnect, you know, and I don't know about you, but I want to stay connected. I want to stay positive and I want to keep moving on my little boat, you know, in a positive manner. And to do that, it's not just one day at a time. Sometimes it's one second at a time, one hour at a time. We get thrown like they talk about lemonades and make lemon. Shoot, I want to have a lemon tree that it keeps it moving and grooving and producing keep lemon and the fruit of life. We're all people that have education in some respect and can use this journey of recovery to help one another. The peer support people that are out there, my peers, you know, I can't tell you how important it is to have connection. To all the therapists out there, it's so important to train yourself in more modalities and your theoretical orientations to meet your clients. They meet you where you're at of what your schooling is. Continue your education. To all my counselors that are listening to this as well too, be better. You know, not only just burnout, because burnout is really deep, but make sure that your family and your home life is good. So when you go to work and you're helping people that that could be their last day of not wanting to live on that planet, that you give your 155. Yes, I said 55 extra that you gave it to them. Not the fact that you were hungry or something was going bad in your life, that you hung that up before you went in there. And that's best practices and putting that, making sure you take care of yourself so you can take care of others, not only in your work, but also in your professional life. Make sure that you're sleeping. Make sure that you're getting that walk-in that you don't want to do. Make sure that if you're that workaholic, that you go ahead and take a break. If you're that person that's out there that's overdoing yourself because you have five or 10 kids, my sister got five kids and she holds it down, okay? Make sure that you're treating yourself to something or take a break. You're going to burn out. And if you're at that point right now, you are in a red flag of a high for relapse or, you know, or burnout. You know, so you need to take action on that piece. If you're listening to this and any of those things hit you, you know, get yourself into something to do with counseling, you know, because anybody that works with people, humans has a high, you know, a burnout rate. You know, when we talk about police officers, when we talk about lawyers, when we talk about counselors, therapists, you know, we hear a lot of stuff, you know, but where is our outlet? What I want you to think about what your outlet is. You know, because that's going to help you. That's going to give you your maintenance. The action is the part that we're like, we're not sure we're going to do. Sometimes you stay in your pre-contemplation stage, but the maintenance part of continuing and holding yourself accountable, because let's keep it real. Not everybody will keep themselves accountable. So sometimes you need accountable partners, right? I didn't say cannibal, but accountable. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's important. And we need people need to hear this. 
They need to hear this to get out of your own way and stop having pride, move forward. And like the part of this podcast, Destination Change, make your change or increase it. How can you increase and do more that you're doing already? Because we don't stay stagnant or we're not growing. We need to grow. You know, and if if I didn't get to grow every day, I wouldn't be successful in what I'm doing. And I'll be here sitting down with you talking, Angie, about how I've changed my life and how I'm in long term recovery. And I'm here and having a six year old and being drug free, putting nothing in my, you know, in my system that's going to alter and have her go. She gets to see me sober. She gets to see me every single day. Yeah, mommy goes through some trials and tribulations with some drama, but she doesn't get to see me loaded. You know what I mean? And that's one of the things I would never want her to be able to see me back in the day or beat up and broke, you know? So if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, make sure that you're doing your work. If you're not doing your work, I'm calling to action for you to do your work and get that pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and get that action going. And therefore, then you can do your maintenance. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Christina. You have been listening to Destination Change, a podcast where we talk about recovery, treatment, and more. Our theme song is Kita by Sun Nation and is available to be used via a Creative Commons license. Thank you very much. If you have any other questions about what we have discussed, everything will be on the National Behavioral Health Association Providers website, which is www.nbhap.org. With that, thank you very much again, Christina. I am so glad you were here today. It was a great conversation. And uh, we'll have our next issue episode, hopefully, here in a month. All right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Do your work. This episode was mixed and edited by the team at Next Day Podcast. For professional podcast editing services with 24-hour turnarounds, visit nextdaypodcast.com. And if you're new to podcasting, check out our amazing podcast launch packages. Record, upload, relax. nextdaypodcast.com.